Coming up this week, we have Tom Chapman on the phone. He is the CEO of the Organic Trade Association, and we're going to talk about some new regulations for the organic industry. We'll also hit on the farm bill and a bit on trade. Let's get into this week's AgNet Weekly. Thanks, Tom, for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I'd like to start off with talking today, Tom, about the Strengthening Organic Enforcement Final Rule. Um, if we could talk more about that, you did just speak at the USDA's Ag Outlook Forum, and I watched your presentation, and it was you know, very informative. So I'd like to go into a little bit more detail on that. Um, it was just released, I think, in January, toward the end of January, and um, became effective this month. So can you tell us a little bit about this new rule? Yeah, so this is the largest revision to the organic standards since they were first published in 2000. And it's really focused on closing loopholes in the certification process to ensure the integrity of the organic product from farm to to consumer. It doesn't change anything about the meaning of organic. So all of the attributes that a consumer is looking for in organic products, that it's minimally processed, that it's farmed, using a sustainable methodology, that there's no use of um, toxic pesticides, uh, synthetic fertilizers, or limited use of, um, you know, processed ingredient products. Uh, All that remains the same. But what it does do is ensure that every entity along the supply chain needs to be certified. So it reduces chances for fraud and it just really ensures that when a, a consumer goes to pick up a product with that USA seal, that, that it's truly uh, an organic farmer is behind it. So every product along the supply chain, that means um, if you're making, let's say, let's make it consumer focused to begin with. If you're making a cereal, yeah. you want all of your ingredients in the, your boxed cereal to be the organic, or they would have to, um, all of your ingredients would have to be organic to claim that the box of cereal is organic. Is that along the lines? Yeah. So w- what was already required was every farmer that, you know, let's, let's say it's a, a oat cereal, right? So every farmer who grew the oats needed to be certified and follow all the practices on their farm. The miller who, you know, turned that oat grow into an oat flake needed to be certified. And the packer who put that into a box, you know, a bag in a box uh, and labeled it as organic cereal, all of those needed to be certified uh, before. But there's a lot more entities potentially in that supply chain than just those folks who kind of transform the product. Um, And that could be, you know, between the the grower and the mill, there's probably a a storage facility, an aggregator. There might be a broker who's buying from multiple farms, having the product stored, and then selling it on to the mill. The mill itself might have a broker between its and um, the cereal manufacturer or a distributor. All those entities, because they weren't transforming the product, didn't have a chance to kind of commingle it with um, other contaminants. They weren't required to be certified. But what that did is it often introduced an opportunity for folks who wanted to cheat the system to kind of shuffle around paperwork and make products potentially that weren't organic look organic. So this change wipes all those exemptions kind of off the board, and all of those entities now need to be certified. So there's a a paper trail and a link and a third-party checking at every entity who has a financial interest or an opportunity to uh, contaminate the product along the supply chain. For this new rule to come about, how big of a problem was or is organic fraud? Yeah, so there's 46,000 certified operations. If you look, you know, USDA publishes their investigations and complaints 
Um, if you look at them, I want to say there was less than um, 200 or so that were either a, a serious violation or that were still open um, for investigation. So they're they're not concluded. You can't you can't draw a conclusion one way or the other. So if you if you do that math, you come out with less than 0.4 percent of certified operations. So it's a it's a small number, but there's been cases in the media of of fraud, and any fraud in this system is is too much fraud. Um, you know, consumers look for that seal, and, and the trust in that seal is highly important. Um, that's a big reason behind the organic program. Because if you, you know, every consumer can't know about every oat farmer behind the cereal that they're buying. And their organic control system gives them that faith. It's important that, you know, someone in between isn't um, taking some action that would give cause for the consumer to not have faith in that label. So any amount of fraud, frankly, is too much, even if it's a small amount. So um, we were very supportive of this. Industry was very supportive of this to ensure that, you know, it, it organic remains the gold standard for consumer trust and kind of eco-labels out there. And I wanted to talk about that, too, because there was a lot of support from the industry for these new rules. And you don't always see that when I mean, we're, you know, talking about adding more rules and um, some stricter enforcement and the the industries and for it and supported it. So can you tell us a little bit about the feeling within the organic industry and why these rules were important to producers and to people inside the industry? Yeah, I mean, organic has always been an anomaly on that front. I think we're also, you could, you could, you could, uh, chalk us up to probably one of the only industries that went to the government and asked to be regulated, uh, back in the 1990s when, when OFPO was originally published, uh, that, you know, set up the law that allowed for the organic standards. Um, so we've always been a little bit different in that organic is the regulated market. The regulations is what sets, you know, the organic stream apart from the conventional stream. And it's what, guarantees the consumer and then all the businesses who who transact in these products that the products that they're buying truly mean something different than than you know a conventional product right next to it and so businesses cared because they're spending money on these ingredients and inputs and you know they're we always think of the consumer being defrauded but businesses along the supply chain would also be defrauded and so are the farmers right who are competing against um, fraudulent products they're also being defrauded because they're not getting a fair, they're not in a fair uh, competitive set there. And so we we found across the board, you know, wide support from industry to tighten these rules up in a way that was both reasonable, wasn't overly burdensome, but that really just, you know, ensured that consumers and businesses alike would have confidence that when they're buying an organic product, that's what they're getting. Mm-hmm. This started within a farm bill, didn't it? Yeah, it started in the 2018 farm bill. Our priorities at that time were to, and, and you know, it was partly um, driven off of the 2017 reporting on ungrain fraud coming out of uh, Turkey by the Washington Post. But but we, you know, looked, we in the industry and the National Organic Standards Board, which is the advisory board to the USDA, had a several hearings on it. The OTA convened a, a task force of its own members. Uh, NOP had listening sessions, and we really took a holistic look at the system and identified these kind of loopholes that when, when organic was small, wasn't really that much of a, a threat to the system. But as it got to big business, you know, as it got to a 60-plus uh, billion-dollar business, um, you know, folks looked to, to exploit that, that kind of fraud opportunity in a sector that was growing, that had growing demand, that had limited supply, and that brought a price premium. 
Um, and so we, we looked at it, and then they all came together with a series of recommendations of areas of which it could get fixed. Um, some of those required statutory changes to the authority of the USDA. So the OTA, um, with its partners in Congress and other stakeholders, uh, pursued those changes in the Organic Foods Production Act to give the NOP the authority and require them to make some of these changes. So it was quite a lengthy process to make sure it was all done as it should be done. Yes. The the, uh, the upside of organic is it's the only eco-label out there that's federally regulated. So it's also the only label that when you look on that, you know, when you pick up a, a product and you see those sea of labels out there, it's the only one that if someone put it on there incorrectly, fraudulently, that the USDA or the Department of Justice will, you know, when reported, will go out, investigate, and pursue either financial or even jail time. There's folks in jail for defrauding, you know, businesses, uh, calling your product organic or not. And you don't see that with natural or non-GMO or anything like that. That's, that's the plus of all of this, is that it truly holds meaning and consequences for folks who are trying to cheat the system. The downside is you're, you're, you're stuck going through the federal bureaucracy system, which is generally not designed for a, a voluntary standard like organic. And so there's a lot of due diligence and checks uh, congressional authorizations required that just slow the process down. And jail time, you brought that up. That is a pretty serious consequence. So it's not, this is not one of those slap on the hands. We, we prefer that you don't do it. This is a very serious regulation. Correct. Yeah. It went into effect this month, which is, you know, March 2023. And I think full enforcement begins in a year or they're going to have it fully enacted in March of 2024. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, this is part of the, the kind of um, regulatory process. Anytime they publish a rule, it's 60 days before it's effective. So it was published in January, so it becomes effective in March. Uh, and then they had a one-year implementation period, so they're not going to enforce on it until um, March of 2024. So all businesses have till March of 2024 to come into compliance. And that's an important time frame because there's now – you know, businesses that some people knew and took the the, the, the forward-looking action of getting certified um, ahead of time, but there's a bunch of entities that now will need to be certified. You know, there's there's details in here that we're glossing over, but there's, you know, aspects of the certification process that are changing, and so every operation is going to have to implement a couple changes to their organic systems plans to come to clients with the rules, and so that's what the next year is, is for, is to just allow these businesses to make those changes. Right. As we talked about, this came about from a farm bill. I want to kind of switch a little bit here and talk about the upcoming farm bill, 2023 farm bill. Any big recommendations from the organic industry for that farm bill? Are, are there things that you're hoping for? Yeah. So we we have a lot of asks in this farm bill, too. Um, I'm going to start with one because it, it, it dovetails on something you already talked to me about. But, you know, we talked a bit about how long it took to get um, – this rule done, and, and we agree that it takes too long to update these kind of voluntary organic standards. And so one area we're advocating for is um, for responsive organic standards, so standards that really are easier to update, um, are responsive to the most uh, recent um, market information and latest science. And so we're looking to have Congress um, establish kind of a pre-planned predictable timeline to review and update organic standards to meet these consumer expectations in the marketplace. And that's not something that we need to kind of uh, readdress every farm bill, that there's a, a cycle that already exists to do this within the USDA. Uh, that's one of our big uh, avenues. We're also focusing to ensure that NOP continues to have the appropriate authorization and funding um, to enforce 
these rules to make sure they, they match the growth of the industry. And then we're also focusing on a series of recommendations to ensure that there's thriving farmers here in America, that they have the right tools um, to be successful. You know, organic farming is different than conventional farming. So some of the, the general tools to support farmers out there that USDA already provides isn't um, adjusted or, or appropriate for organic farmers. And so we're just trying to make sure that those tools get adjusted to, to serve the diversity of the American farm landscape, including organic farmers. And then lastly, we're looking to establish resilient organic supply chains. We all saw the impact that COVID caused on supply chains. Organic was not uh, exempt from those issues. And so we're looking at appropriate investments into um, markets and, and farms and, and infrastructure to make sure that organic farming here in the U.S. and um, can continue to grow and we continue to also export our organic products abroad. When you're exporting organics, a lot of countries for every crop have different regulations. So you have to follow all of the different countries' regulations. Is that more complicated with organic products? It is because um, oftentimes uh, these other countries will have an organic standard as well. It may differ. And depending on our relationship with that company, we have several equivalencies negotiated through the USDA with several um, other countries. So Europe, for example, European Union, we have no equivalency with them where we recognize uh, their products with a couple exceptions and they recognize our products with a couple exceptions. That really facilitates trade between our two areas because we're not bogged down with um, certification requirements of someone else. And that can get quite complicated as we talk about, you know, organic is a certification that happens now at every stage in the supply chain. So if you're looking to export that cereal, and you didn't have an equivalency, there's a good chance you would be required to have certification of that, you know, exporting country at every step in that supply chain, which just becomes very burdensome. So OTA has always worked very closely with USDA to establish equivalencies. Most of our um, big export markets have those, um, but we're also looking to ensure that we continue to promote U.S. products abroad, just find opportunities to plug them into new and emerging markets like in the UAE, the Middle East, or in uh, Southeast Asia and other places. Thank you. And then going back to to our previous question and, and answer, you mentioned several USDA tools that work for other crops and, and not necessarily for organic or could be better utilized for organic. Can you give me an example of some of those? Yeah, one area we're really focusing on is risk management tools. So let's, let's talk crop insurance. Um, you know, that's a, that's a tool that, that the U.S. government provides broadly to a lot of uh, commodity-based farmers. But the, the underlining requirements of it just don't align with organic practices very well. So I'll give you, I'll give you one concrete example. Um, when you transition to organic, you, gotta, you, know, you have to farm organically for three years, but you sell those products as conventional. Organic farms generally use crop rotation practices and can have up to you know, three to six crops that they rotate. Um, as you do these transitions, risk management doesn't recognize their conventional crop history anymore, and you need a crop history to get crop insurance. But that's by crop. And so if you have, if you're starting over at scratch and you got a six crop rotation um, for each piece of land for each crop, it's going to take you 18 years before you get um, the data needed to get crop insurance from the risk management agency. And so that's just not, that's not realistic and functional for for that farmer. So we need to find better ways to get that kind of uh, actuarial history to to RMA. 
so that transitioning farmers and organic farmers can get that same access to crop insurance and risk mitigation tools that conventional producers already have. When you put it as you did with the 18 years, that is not helpful for farmers at all to have to wait to 18 years to get some crop protection. No, not at all. Is there a, a way that you would suggest changing it or what? how would you improve this? If you could go and just write it yourself with all the knowledge that you have, how would you fix this? Yeah, I mean, we do really want to work closely with the agency to establish the best practices and how to do this. But, you know, there, there, there's a couple options out there immediately that I could, I could throw out. One is allowing them to use their previous yield histories. Uh, another one is to just use, you know, established histories for the region versus the, the, the histories that they're using themselves. And this that, that's that one single issue. There's a couple other issues um, that are very similar, though, that just require a kind of wider set of thinking to make sure that the tools being designed, the problem is that the tools were designed for a different form of agriculture. And we just need to make sure the tools are readjusted now to, to match the current diversity of agriculture, which includes organic. Those are all of the, the questions that I had for you, but I wonder, is there anything else that we should have been talking about or anything that you would like to expand on? No, the one other area of my of our platform that we haven't been talking too much on is, um, you know, the, the focus on climate smart agriculture and just ensuring that organic also, um, you know, becomes uh, integrated into uh, climate smart agriculture programs, whatever may emerge from the, from the USDA. You know, a lot of, if you look at a lot of the tools and even just the last set of like climate smart grants, all the practices they're looking to promote are practices that have been required and audited and verified on organic farms from, from the get-go. So we have a 20-year history of doing crop rotations, um, a 20-year history of doing cover crops, of doing uh, land set-asides for biodiversity and habitat. And so there's um, one area we're just also focusing on asking Congress to look at as we embark in this, you know, agriculture, American agriculture-wide approach to integrating climate-smart agriculture, ensuring that um, folks who have been doing this for years also get the due recognition uh, that organic is incorporated into those and that in doing so, we don't create additional set of burden for them to apply to separate programs or other verification systems when we already have a very robust uh, functioning system there that also has an end market with consumers who are already buying organic products in the first place. Right. It seems like there could be some some learning from the organic industry rather than trying to reteach new things to everybody who's already been doing it. Yeah. And just and, and ensuring that, you know, there's there's um, not reteaching it. You know, we, we do operate different forms of agriculture, but that um, as we're like award as we're supporting these new practices, there's there's a whole you know, section of agriculture, that being organic, who's been doing this for decades. And so they also need to be recognized for the work that they've already been doing. Well, that is everything that we have for today. So thank you, Tom, for joining us. I appreciate it. No problem. This was great. Thanks again to Tom Chapman, CEO of the Organic Trade Association. Next week, we're looking at the livestock industry and some policies that will be affecting producers. This has been the AgNet Weekly. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thanks for tuning in.